please tell us th something about your musical education. Ah, <laughs> well, that's complicated. Um, I started playing piano when I was four because my older brother and sister played piano, and it seemed like something that if they were doing it, it's something I better be doing. But when I was eight years old, um, I wanted to play the drums, and the school drum program was all filled up, but they had lots of space in the violin program. So I ended up playing the violin. And it has remained both my signature and um, occasional albatross. I don't you know this expression, albatross. It, a, 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 a burden to bear as uh, being a violinist. But, um, but to tell you the truth, I, uh, I really was more interested. I had more skill as a kid in areas of uh, mathematics and uh, logic and so forth and uh, and music was sort of secondary to my interest in theater and um, just sort of something I did on the side and I think it really wasn't until I was in college and I had decided that I was going to be a computer science major and I realized that all the other computer science majors were guys who wore white shirts and pocket protectors and the band I played with on weekends I met really cute girls and so it, it at that point it became I realized that it was that my electric violin skills were going to advance me further in the areas I was more interested in at that point. Um, so I decided to go to music school and I ended up going to Berkeley. And so uh, then from there, I, I, I made my way to New York City and eventually to here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. What is your favorite instrument within or outside an orchestra and why is that? Um, I, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. My favorite instrument is, mm -hmm. is, is you're asking, what is my favorite instrument? Yeah. Oh, you know, I don't really think I have a favorite instrument. I mean, I'd, it's whatever works. I mean, it, I guess if you really were to point a gun to me head, my head and say, you must choose, uh, I would probably say the human voice. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, why is that? That's about as basic as you can get. Um, most people can make sounds and, and most people even can sing. And it probably was if either voice or drums was probably our first instrument. And uh, there's something that's very deeply human about it. Mm -hmm. What was your very first assignment as a film music composer? That's an interesting question, you know, um, because I got involved with film music not all at once, but sort of bit by bit. Um, I, I think that it's fair to say that probably the first time that I composed music for a film uh, in a sort of planned way was um, for a short uh, that a friend of mine had directed. Uh, and it was uh, a, a uh, it just by chance, ended up going to Sundance Film Festival, and I went to the Fil Sundance Film Festival, and I went, oh, this is fun. I should do more of this. And it really was, I had no idea at the time how completely fluky it was that my friend made a short, and I scored it, and we ended up at the Sundance Film Festival. But uh, it was a good way to start. Mm -hmm. Cool. So are you still proud of this score? 
Yeah, actually, I am. That one's called Cupidity. You can find it online if you Google Cupidity. The name of the director is Keith Thompson, T-H-O-M-S-O-N, who's become a well-known novelist since then. Um, and um, he is, uh, it, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a little fantasy short. It's very cute. Uh, quite cynical as befits Keith's cynical humor. And um, actually, uh, the score I did for it, uh, I still think holds up. I heard it not too long ago. Mm -hmm. Who are your personal or musical idols, if you have them? Oh, that's too many to list. <laughs> for example, 10. <laughs> um, well, I think the first film scores that really got me thinking about film scores was were probably Maurice Jarre's scores uh, for um, in particular for uh, Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia and I went ooh that's really cool music uh, but you know my my musical idols range everything from the Beatles to uh, Debussy uh, I mean I, I go through different periods of, of times you know Stravinsky certainly um, Uh, you know, just in in any one division of pop music, I could probably name 30 people who uh, I say yes, that's the one. You know, but uh, it it, um, it it I'm afraid the list would be too uh, comprehensive. It, 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 but uh, it can't be too comprehensive because it would take too long. But uh, I will say that uh, I, I, I do consider it a privilege that I get to often work with Hans Zimmer, who I think is, is one of the outstanding film composers of our day. And just yesterday, I was rollerblading down the hall here at Remote Control, and I saw Danny Elfman. He's certainly one of my heroes as well. Wow. And are there any soundtrack albums by other composers in your music collection at home? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, most of my... I mean, my my soundtrack collection at this point consists mostly of a hard drive but it's a big hard drive um and uh I, you know what I, th i think rather than talking about the greats you know the john williamses and whatever who we all know are, are brilliant i'd rather get excited about the people pe that are a little less known like somebody like cliff martinez who i think it just does fabulous work in the minimalist area and just has this exquisite sense of um texture and Uh, and mood, and uh, I'm I'm a huge fan of of, of Cliffs, and um, consider myself fortunate to be among his friends as well. Um, I really admire John Bryan's work. Very different from Cliffs, you know. He's sort of astringent, um, pop or influenced stuff. Uh, sounds different from anybody else out there. I think both of them are extremely good and probably less well-known than they should be. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, I mean, you know, Danny Elfman and Hans and John Williams don't need any more promotion, you know. Mm. <laughs> They're all doing just fine. Yeah, and Jerry Goldsmith, perhaps. But Jerry Goldsmith, of course, you know. I mean, I mean, if you're talking about, if we're including dead people, you know, the list is very large. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, and Elmer Bernstein and... Uh, and, and of course, Bernard Herrmann and, uh, you know, and Korngold and, you know, you name it, all these guys contributed so much. Um, uh, one of the people who is a little lesser known than them, but a really great composer, a guy named Michael Small, uh, who composed the music for Clute and um, uh, 
Marathon Man, uh, uh, Parallax View, a lot of the famous paranoid thrillers of the 70s. He was uh, a mentor for me. He, I met him in New York, and we first met because I was doing music for advertising at the time, and we ended up doing different parts of it, the same advertising campaign. Um, and I ended up doing, actually, before I scored this little short for my friend, I actually did some source cues for Michael in some of his movies. And um, he was really encouraging to me and was the person who convinced me I should move to Los Angeles to pursue this career. And I came here from New York really not knowing anybody or anything and spent a couple of years wandering in the, in the wilderness of Topanga. Um, finally, through a series of very unlikely events, ended up getting my first television show. Uh, and Michael called me up and had seen it. it was This was Cold Case. And um, he, he called me up to see, he'd seen the first show and he was very excited and very encouraging and told me he was proud of me. And, and I said, uh, I heard you were sick. And he said, uh, yeah. I said, how's it going? He says, uh, well, not so well. And he was dead two weeks later. Hmm. So it was, uh, I'm so glad he got to see, you know, his protege do his first show. So. Oh. Great. What was the last soundtrack album you fought? Um, good question. Um, people give me a lot of soundtrack albums, so I'm trying to think of which one did I actually... Oh, I bought the soundtrack to Lost mm -hmm. very recently. Um, and uh, because Michael Giacchino had not seen fit to give me a copy. And um, so um, uh, I think he's tremendously talented. I, I think that's one of the best television film scores ever written. I never seen the series, uh, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Because it was one of those shows where if you missed a week, you didn't know what was going on. And so when it was on the air, I never watched it because it was like, well, what's the point? Because I, I knew my schedule was too crazy to watch it. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I watched it um, all at once over a period of a couple of months um, uh, recently and went, Wow, some really great work on, on my... I, I actually like it better than any of his film scores, and I think he's an accomplished composer, but I, I think this is really was outstanding work. What is inspiring you? Ah, well, <laughs> um, that's, that's complicated, I mean, but, I, I, you know, I get inspired by the oddest things. I mean, I, certainly uh, I get excited by reading physics. I'm reading a book right now on information theory, and that excites me. Uh, I get excited by nature. I get excited by people I know. Um, I love reading. Uh, I love, uh, and I'll, I'll get excited by other people's work. I'll, I'll see something or hear something that really, you know, other works of art. I just went to see the, the uh, Tim Burton exhibit at, at uh, Los Angeles County Museum a couple of weeks ago, which was really fascinating. And found that very interesting, but what really inspired me was going to the next building and seeing the 20th century art, seeing uh, Jackson Pollock and, and Picasso and, uh, you know, all these guys. And, and the Picasso in particular hit me because one of the things that struck me about it was this is a guy who really didn't care what other people thought. Mm -hmm. And one of the difficulties of being a film and television composer is you constantly have to worry about what other people think that that's part of your job and you're helping to tell a story you're part of a larger picture 
and but it's ultimately someone else's vision that you're helping execute and it is sometimes you you there's this delicate balance between you have to bring yourself to it but at the same time you have to subsume that into this larger idea and one of the things that is quite liberating about looking at Picasso is here's a guy who obviously never subsumed anything. Mm -hmm. and, and it was kind of inspiring. I was like, yeah, check out the jams. <laughs> Great. Is there um, the composing uh, something that makes less fun for you um, when you write music or composing? Um, is there something that makes less fun for you when you compose music? Oh, <laughs> yes. Doing it over and over, uh, and it, as my friend Trevor Morris and I have agreed, it's not the writing, it's the rewriting. Um, it, it's um, not always, but very often, your initial vision of something is the one that, you're, that you feel the strongest about and that you really feel is where, it's, is, it, it, where the purest form of what you're doing exists. And then... Sometimes you'll get feedback that's actually helpful and improves that. But probably an equal number of times you'll get feedback that is just expressing some particular prejudice of somebody who has more power than you. And so you go through the, this negotiating process of making oftentimes something you believe less effective in order to accommodate somebody's opinion. That's very frustrating because mm -hmm. you really... Everybody who does this does it because they want it to be great. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, although there are a small number of people who are very financially successful in, in who are composers, nobody gets into it for the money. Nobody. It, it really is. You, you get into it because you're excited about it. it it's something that that that. You want it. You're you're and you're you basically want to make a, a, the best piece of art you can, and it's frustrating. The biggest frustration is when you feel that there is something standing between you and accomplishing that, and you know sometimes you're wrong. I mean, you know, it it, it doesn't mean just because I think I'm doing something that's the that's the best possible thing that is that I'm. <laughs> I mean, I just might be completely stupid, but um, but that's my my that's what drives me and when that's thwarted that's frustrating mm -hmm. and what do you think is the best thing about composing music everything <laughs> uh, you know I mean look I have I have an amazing job I come into my studio every day and I get to make music for a living uh, I'm every day I am both grateful and astonished that I've scammed the world into letting me do this And, um, you know, most people have real jobs where they have to go and do something that they don't they're not very interested in in order to pay their bills. And, uh, you know, those of us in the arts and and in the journalistic arts, uh, I would say uh, also, you know, have we have this great uh, blessing that we're able to do something that we really care about every day and and you know that's so that's that's the best part of it is that I've somehow managed to make to turn it into a living how is your approach in scoring for films well I'm a big story person um, I think to be grossly oversimplified 
people talk about left brain people and right brain people and, and musicians as a whole are supposed to be um, uh, right brain people, you know, it, it, it is, which means that you, that's your, coming from your intuitive side and all of this stuff. And I think I kind of come from both sides. Mm -hmm. And um, I do have a whole, and I think as a whole, players are more, you know, and, and, and this is really more of a metaphor than a physical reality. We're talking about the, the, the neurology of, of playing. There's a little bitty dollop of truth to this, but not nearly as much as people make it out to be. But I do think there are different personality types. And I, my personality type is I am equally drawn to the logic and the art of the words and the, and the story as I am to the music. And the purpose of the music is to make, to give that story an emotional depth. Elmer Bernstein once said to me, um, let me tell you a dirty little secret. We're actually not musicians, we're dramatists. Mm. And I think that that's a great, there's a great truth there that this is why you take somebody like, I don't know, Carter Burwell, good examples, who I consider to be a really accomplished film composer. Is he a great musician? Eh, who knows? Uh, you know, he's not a very technical musician. Um, not like, you know, a John Williams, but, you know, if you were to compare somebody like Carter Burwell's score to, say, somebody like, well, I, I don't want to attack anyone in particular, but there are certain composers who are very technically adept and don't really have much to say and don't really get to the core of the story. Uh, Carter totally gets to the core of the story. He's a great dramatist. And it doesn't. it's not really relevant whether or not he's a great musician. And so... In terms of my approach, it's always story first, and I like to get as close to the characters and the story as I can because that will dictate what the music should be. In the IMDb, is the read that your first job was playing the violin on the streets. How can we imagine, <laughs> and how were the re reactions? Um, well, I was arrested in three European cities. Um, I'm not sure that reflects on my playing, um, but it might. Um, um, I particularly thought it was funny uh, when I was arrested in Amsterdam because I was a few doors down from uh, a, a legal house of prostitution and a guy selling uh, a few, like 10 feet from a guy selling heroin on the street. But they busted me because I was playing the violin. Hmm. And... Um, Uh, it probably didn't help that I was a foreigner, but uh, I, they, they impounded my violin and told me that, um, it, that I had to have proof that I was leaving the country to get it back, which I did. And the, as I finally got my violin, the, the, the policeman said, I, I was right out of college, and, I, I, and the policeman said, next time you come back to Holland, you abide by the laws, eh? And I said, under my breath, because I didn't, wasn't very courageous i said i'm not coming back to holland unless the goddamn dutch government pays me to and i stomped out so fast forward three years and i'm working for laura dean dancers and musicians um in new york and she gets a gig in holland at the holland festival paid for by who the goddamn dutch government so i kept my word i, I went back to holland paid for by the dutch government cool And your first experience in the music business was not the film music, um, but you was in no. bands from Nanny Kravitz, Cher, or Grandmaster Flash. What have you done there in the bands? 
Well, and, and though each of those were sort of one-offs, um, and each one is a different story, um, uh, Grandmaster Flash, I played on a record. Uh, uh, Cher, I did some programming for a record. Uh, Lenny Kravitz, I was on a live MTV thing. Uh, I mean, those were just famous people who I happened to be associated with in some way or another. But in terms of real work I was doing, you know, continuous work, uh, it was tended to be with people a lot less famous. Although uh, I did... Um, Used to play. I used to play in a regular country western band with this great young singer at, at the time uh, named Sean Colvin, who then ultimately ended up becoming this big star doing her own music. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I mean, basically, when I moved to New York from Boston, where I went to school in Boston, and I took any job I could. I accompanied dance classes. I played music on the street. I played in in Irish bands and country western bands. And, you know, I, I didn't have any family connections or, or fantastic uh, breaks that came my way. So I pretty much did what most journeyman musicians do, is you do whatever you can. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the ironies is that uh, one of my jobs, as I mentioned, was I played fiddle in Irish band. And I learned uh, all these Irish fiddle tunes and um, it was actually a really fun job. I did that for a couple of years. And many years later, I moved to L.A. And um, I had had a conversation with Harry Gregson Williams, which was an odd enough connection as it was that I won't bother to explain because it was complicated. But uh, I mentioned in passing that I had played an Irish fiddle. And he uh, was asked to score a film called Veronica Guerin that included that took place in Ireland, and he needed an Irish band to work out some ideas while he was developing his score. And so he asked me if I could put together an Irish band and for him. And this is he'd never even heard me play. He just he I guess he just went on instinct. And uh, I said, oh well, of course. And of course, I no one here. But I got on the phone, and within 24 hours, I had not just an Irish band, but a really good Irish band. Mm. And we did all these sort of pub band tracks for him for that movie. And uh, he got, there was a, there's a key scene in that movie in which uh, Veronica Guerin is murdered by the bad guys. And um, uh, he had written it three times. And Harry's brilliant. I mean, really great composer. And he had done a great job three times. And Jerry Bruckheimer was like, ah, and so he said, well, do you want to take a crack at it? You know, we got nothing to lose. So I did. And, you know, Jerry bought into that one. So uh, that launched my career as a film composer here in Los Angeles, because this all happened about the same. I met Hans through Harry, Hans Zimmer through Harry. And that in turn led because Hans was had a deal with Jerry about television. My CD got thrown into a pile with a bunch of other composers and I ended up getting picked to score a cold case and so all of that because I played Irish fiddle. Wow I found out that week that you have written Give Me a Break uh, from the Kit Kat advertisements. Um, in, in Germany? Uh, yeah Kit Kat it's called. Well I know they, they, the Kit Kat product they have but do they play that commercial? Mm-hmm. They do oh because in yeah. England they have a different uh, campaign called uh, Take a Break oh. which is uh, a, ding, a different jingle, but the, the "Give Me a Break" jingle is, you know, it, it always surprises me. It's used in some countries and not in others, but yes, that was probably, in terms of financial 
compensation for the shortest amount of effort ever put in on any composition, definitely the top of the list. Hmm. Uh, I believe I composed that between the time I had the meeting at the advertising agency and by the time I had gotten down the elevator and crossed uh, and had crossed Madison Avenue, I believe I had uh, uh, the, the I had it written by then. And so that was uh, now the lyrics were actually written by a, a guy named Ken Schuldman, who was the agency copywriter, and he gave me pages of possible lyrics. And I sort of went, oh, this, this, this. And that was the lyric. And I had decided that in the elevator. And um, then um, and, and as I said, it was written less than five minutes from when I got the assignment. Wow. <laughs> And then I went home. Oh, the best part of the story is I went home and I, I really heard it as this sort of guitar-driven thing. And it was Zydeco was very big at the time. And I thought, okay, we'll be this kind of accordion and guitar thing. And um, so uh, I was then and remain now. Uh, I, I always tell people I'm a violinist by training, a keyboard player by necessity, and a guitarist by aspiration. Well, then I was definitely even worse a guitar player than I am now. And so I, I call up the copywriter, Ken, and I said, um, okay, I've got something I think is, is, is really work, working. Um, you know, I'm a really terrible guitar player, but I want to I play this for you on the guitar because I feel like it, this is really the right vibe for it. But um, I really think this, is, this is, is working. And I played him the song. And I pick up the phone. I said, well, what do you think? He says, you're absolutely right. You are a terrible guitar player. <laughs> So that was the first reaction ever to a jingle which has now been on the air for 25 years. Wow. <laughs> and um, 1995, you have written music uh, for Cupidity. How did you come to this job? Well, Keith Thompson was at the time a, an art director and a copywriter for Saatchi and Saatchi, I think it was, uh, one of the big advertising agencies who I wrote music for. And I had written some music for a campaign of his for Apple and Cinnamon, which were these superhero characters that Keith, besides being a great um, writer, is also a fabulous uh, uh, caricaturist. And uh, he had created these characters, very unusual you know, double threat, a bit like Matt Groening or, or Gary Larson. Well, Gary Larson's a different case altogether, but, you know, one of those rare people who sort of has both both the words and the pictures together. And um, so Keith uh, had told me he was doing the short and said, you know, would I do the music for it? And, you know, of course I said yes, because I liked Keith and, you know, I was paid zero for it. And uh, but it did launch my film career. And then came Cold Case, really beautiful music from you, and great there, that there is a CD release. Um, how can we imagine the work on the series, which includes song from the periods of the case, cases? Um, yeah, now I'm not actually, my job on that show, I was not directly responsible for the songs. They were usually, uh, the writers of the episodes would envision the songs that they wanted and then it was up to the music supervisor to try to see if they could license them um in a few cases i actually wrote some songs for the show uh there was one episode in particular called beautiful little fool because it took place in 1929 and the character was a songwriter 
Uh, we wanted original songs for it, uh, uh, partly because of the character and also partly because the uh, the music that you could get, the authentic recordings of the time, were not very sonically very good. Um, and so it was difficult to get a sense of emotion from them. Um, so they instead... Uh, I wrote these songs with uh, the, the with Liz Garcia, who had written the episode, and she wrote the lyrics, and I wrote the music, and and the character actually sang them on screen. But that was unusual. Usually, this the songs are uh, licensed, mm-hmm. and so and uh, my job is oftentimes to go in and out of that. But uh, it's interesting how I don't. I didn't do a lot of period music writing. I would do a tip of the hat. I'd have a color or a harmonic idea or a melodic idea, something that suggested the period. But usually it's a lot less explicit than people think. People who've seen the show who are not very savvy about music, oftentimes their memory is that the score all took place in 1964 or whatever, and actually it didn't. The songs did. But the score was oftentimes the bridge between that period and now. Mm-hmm. And the score is, yeah, great. Um, I know the series since 20, uh, 2004, and I love it. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, continue. That's yeah, uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, series. <laughs> well, it was, I'm really, unfortunately, it's, it's no longer being produced, mm. but uh, I'm very, very grateful to have worked on it, and um, the uh, the actors involved all became my friends, and the um, producers are all you know people I respect a lot, or and, and in some cases are have remained friends with as well. So um, it it was a great experience. Uh, love to have another one like it. Um, the music in the opening credits is from E. S. Posthumous. This is a funny story. I think I can tell this. Well, yeah. the the first five seconds in the opening credits is actually music that I put together. Uh, that was uh, this is a singer named Elise Morris, who I worked with in New York, who's a wonderful uh, composer in her own right too. A uh, really g- good composer, but she's a she's a Greek uh, descent and does that kind of Balkan yodeling thing beautifully. And so I had a whole thing invo- involved in mind involving Balkan yodeling, but. We ended up with two notes, and actually, it, it, it works really. Oh, the ah! Uh, one of the funniest things was listening to Jeremy Ratchford sing along with the um, uh, that uh, particular clip. But uh, the rest of it, though, what be, was library music that was from E.S. Posthumous, quote unquote, and they had already picked it out before they even hired me. So I never really got a chance to to even take a stab at writing the main oh. theme. I wrote the the music is used at the end, but the, the main theme is theirs. Mm-hmm. And uh, E.S. Posthumus was, is a pseudonym for these two brothers named the Pfeiffer brothers, who are, uh, uh, I forget what their first names are, but they are uh, music uh, library creators here in Los Angeles. And they correctly perceived about 10 years ago when they put this together, they wanted to put together a really classy library music album. And I I don't know if you know what library music is, but library music is music that's created that they then turn around and license to trailers and TV shows and commercials and so forth. But it's created first specifically for that purpose, but for no, uh, uh, but not generally released as an album or anything. 
And they had made many library albums and had been successful, but they correctly perceived that library music as a whole was considered sort of cheap. And if they package this as this unknown, these unknown German brothers, they would, um, they could sell it for more money. So they did, and they created this whole mythology of E.S. Postumus, and they each one, uh, Hans von Richthofen or something. I can't remember the names. They, it was ridiculous that the names they came up with were, were like somebody making fun of, of German names. And um, uh, von Lichten, I think it was. And uh, so they, they each, each one came up with a name, and, they, uh, and, and lo and behold, the record um, was quite successful, not just as a library record, but they actually sold it on the open market under E.S. Postumus. And, and of course, the whole thing was, you know, all a pseudonym and it was all made up. But bottom line was they wrote some really good music. And one of the tunes was um, this piece called Nara, um, which I presume I, I never asked them, but I assume that it was based on the, the, the famous Japanese uh, retreat. In, uh, near Tokyo, um, and um, it is, uh, it's, it's, and they used an excerpt of that for the cold case theme. Sadly, one of the uh, brothers died a, uh, about a year and a half ago, I, I, very unexpectedly. He was in an accident, sort of freak accident in his home. But um, uh, but that's the that's the story. For serious, you have won between 2003 and 2010 every year for every season the ASCAP Film and Television Music Award. Congratulations. Um, have the other nominated composers not given up at some point with the motto, Michael wouldn't win anyway? <laughs> <laughs> well, the ASCAP Awards don't work that way. Uh, I don't beat anybody. They just award it to people they they think are deserving, which basically means that a lot of people watch the show. Mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, I, I wish, I, 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 if I were a, a little bit more savvy like the Pfeiffer brothers, I could come up with a good story about what that award really means. But what the award really means is they're awarding me for being fortunate enough to score a show that is popular. Mm -hmm. And and so the show, is, the show, even in its last year, when they finally decided to cancel it, it still was watched here in the United States by over 10 million people. So uh, that's that that would be considered very successful for some kinds of shows, but um, uh, not for a show that was as expensive as that one was. You work often with Hans Zimmer. Are you a member of Remote Control Productions? Well, uh, I'm I'm not quite sure what a member would mean. I'm I I my studio is in Hans's complex, which is remote control, yeah. which is six buildings here in Santa Monica. Um, you know, I'll show you around. Wow. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, they're, they're, you know, Hans's studio is a lot more impressive than mine. Uh, my business relationship with him is he is technically, he's my landlord, period. Mm -hmm. And he hires me freelance to work on his projects. Now, the fact that he rented me space was in the fact that he thinks that I'm useful, so therefore... Um, uh, he would wants me to be here, so um, and and it's it benefits both of us. Uh, he benefits by having me be in handy, and I benefit by being part of this community and occasionally working on his material. But I essentially have an independent career. And how can we imagine uh, your work there in the studios? So what do you uh, do the whole day? What do I do all day? Well, throw darts. Uh, <laughs> now I. It all depends on, on what's, I mean, if I'm busy scoring, I'm busy sitting in front of 
these computers over here uh, making uh, uh, putting a, a score together but a lot of times my day is distracted by everything from um, well I, I still practice my my violin <laughs> uh -huh. and those are all of the instruments on the wall, and I have a bunch of guitars behind the computer here. I'm not going to turn around and show it to you. And, you know, I try to keep up my skills as a player, uh, and I uh, – then there's lots of business to deal with. There's stuff that's, you know, I'm on the phone it's, and on the on typing emails as much as doing music, it seems. And so um, it all depends. But when I've, if I've got a deadline um, – and I'm working toward the deadline. Everything else gets pushed aside, and the, it's, it's focused on music. But most of my music work is done in front of a computer. And you worked as a musician at Sherlock Holmes. What instruments you have played? The violin. On Sherlock Holmes, uh, I did very little on Sherlock Holmes. I, mm -hmm. I recorded some uh, pieces for Hans um, that were ultimately not used in the movie. So, I mean, yes, I did actually work on the film, but the featured violinist on that film is a guy named uh, Alexei Ingusman, who's a wonderful um, European player and uh, is actually good, is the featured player on the current Sherlock Holmes that they're recording right, right now. So my role was very small. Mostly I just recorded a, a bunch of fiddle tunes for Hans to sort of decide that he didn't want to go that direction. <laughs> So. You're often sometimes in the team of Hans Zimmer, Henry Jackson Williams and Henry Jackman, when they have written and recorded the music. When can we well, really... It's more than Henry Jackman, but go ahead. Yeah, Henry, I think I did one job for once. Yeah. Oh, okay. And when we, when we uh, can really expect your first music to a bigger movie? Well, you know, um, in my opinion, it should have happened years ago. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm not the person who hires me. Uh, You know, I'm I I've, look. I've I've scored a number of smaller pictures. I'm hoping that that one of the directors from one of the pictures that I've scored ends up getting a big picture. That's how it usually works. And and it, unfortunately, you can't really write your own ticket as a composer in this field. Almost everybody is who is a composer is either um, I mean somebody more powerful than they opens a door. And so far, in terms of the film world, that hasn't happened for me. I'd be very happy for it to happen, but uh, um, I'm still waiting for the, the the people I associate with to, to become more successful. <laughs> And you have worked outside the TV series movie business as a composer, for example, Divination by Mirrors, a concerto for musical saw and orchestra. Could you tell us something about your work outside the film music? Well, I love writing concert music because, again, it's... I'll tell you a funny story. I wrote a, a concerto for pedal steel guitar and orchestra um, at, in, um, I guess, 2004 or five thereabouts. And um, I had been so conditioned by the creation of music for picture that when I got a call from the music, uh, from the conductor, who was also the music uh, director of the, of the orchestra, um, that he had uh, some questions for me. I assumed he was going to say something like, well, you know, I really think this third movement is too fast. And uh, I think, uh, you know, maybe you should cut the second movement down a little bit. And, you know, I was I was waiting for some kind of feedback like this, you know, some sort of critical feedback. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, but it's the concert music world in that world. The, the composer is king. And so he calls up and he says, um, I'm looking at the score now. Uh, is the piccolo 8VA or loco? 
uh, meaning is it does it sound an octave higher or mm. is it where written? And I said, uh, uh, HVA, and he goes, okay, thanks, goodbye. <laughs> that was it. That was the entire question. And I was like, wow, I love the concert world. <laughs> and everything else, they just played it the way I wrote it. Mm -hmm. and, um, it was great. Do you have any new projects coming up? I have a lot of new projects. Ironically, the two biggest projects I'm working on right now, two of them, I am forbidden to talk about. I have signed oh. non-disclosure agreements, and neither one will be seen by the world till a, a year from this fall, which is very frustrating to me because they're both really cool, and I'd love to talk about them, but I, if I do, I will be in big trouble, so I can't. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I have, uh, I, uh, I am, I can tell you that that one of them is for something for television, um, from a very uh, prestigious. Uh, director, uh, producer, uh, rather, and um, uh, the other one is a live concert thing. And uh, but in addition to that, I'm also scoring a couple of small films. I'm I'm working on a film right now called um, uh, No One Will Know, uh, which is directed by a young director named Raj Reddy, and um, it is it's a really well written, well executed thriller done on a shoestring and I'm really proud of how the score is coming out so we're in the middle of doing that right now um, and um, then the, then it seems as though uh, one, one of the things that I, I, I continue to do as a player is there's certain composers who call me up and and I, I play on their material I have become my friend Trevor Morris's regular uh, player particularly playing the, the tenor violin, which is this instrument that's, um, uh, oh, this is, you're, you're doing an audio recording here, right? Mm -hmm. There is, um, the, 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 the violin has a register that goes from the G below middle C to on up. Okay, so that's, that's, that's the violin register. Now, the tenor violin is an instrument that is an octave down from the violin. Mm -hmm. Looks a lot like a violin, but oh. here. And then the chiola is an octave below a viola, and so it's the same register as a cello. So wow. those are the the tenor violin in particular has a kind of a. It's a very unusual string instrument, has a kind of a folky sound to it. And I end up playing the tenor violin a lot for Trevor on the, the scores that he's well known for, which are he worked on the Tudors, uh, uh, Pillars of the Earth, uh, the Borgias. Uh, he's got a film coming out called The Immortals, um, in which um, I'll get a screen credit as, a, oh. as the featured uh, violinist. But uh, it's primarily playing tenor violin because it, it has this kind of medieval sound that uh, seems to fit well with his scores which are a mixture of contemporary music and medieval music and so uh, that's great fun and so that you can you can look for although that's uh, you know again the, the, in that particular case it's, it's Trevor's will quite deservedly get most of the kudos although he was just nominated for a, uh, uh, two Emmys and he says it must be the violin playing so one more little thing are called five terms and you tell me just briefly what comes to your minds okay sure okay uh, film music anything that helps the story orchestra collection of musicians determined 
in part by what works for the time it exists in. Favorite movie? Uh, Wings of Desire by Vin Benders. Hollywood. Uh, da 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 Hollywood. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's, it's, it's, it's too, it, that's too easy of a target. <laughs> Go on. Okay. Um, end of work. Work or end of work? Which end of work. Work, something I've managed to not do for my entire career, and I'm really um, pleased with how I've managed to scam the world into letting me play every day. Mm -hmm. Great. That was it. Thank you for the interview. Quite welcome.